Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association based at Wits University, Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast engages with issues about university life relevant to students and staff looking in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular area. My name is Nosipum Gomezulu. And I'm Kolega Shangli. And, and we are your hosts. hosts. Hi, I'm Tabang Poneng and I'm from UJ. The challenges that upcoming universities are facing are issues of branding, issues of credibility and issues of prestige. I think uh, unless you're working out of VITS or UCT, people are most likely going to try and interrogate the quality of your education, the quality of research that comes out of, say, upcoming universities, be it in the north or be it um, in the south of uh, South Africa or even in the west or even, say, in, in KZN, is deemed and usually perceived to be of inferior quality. Karina Traits lectures and is establishing the anthropology department at Salt Lake University in Kimberley, South Africa. Her teaching and research focuses on contextual knowledge production, sharing and engagement. Her master's, recently obtained, was on nourishment and the first thousand days in the context of precarious livelihoods in a small Cape Winelands town. Her interdisciplinary research interests are in food, well-being, the body, temporality, and the complex patterning of kin, capital, affect, and inheritance as vectors that edit life. Welcome to the show, Karina. Hi, thank you so much. It's really great to have you. Our relationship uh, goes way back in time when we lived in a small eastern Cape town, Echini. Yeah. And I was I and I was a big eyed twenty one year old trying to drop knowledge bombs in a classroom. I can't believe they let me teach you guys. But look at you. You made it. I'm so glad that they let you teach us. It was such a very fresh air. Um, I remember those lectures very clearly. But maybe if I remember the content, so I shouldn't be this honest. Sorry about this. But it was just really awesome. You already made GLC come alive. It was so exciting. So it's, and also you, were, you had a radio show at the time. But I remember listening to you. It's such, like, such a cool thing to be on RMF. It's really, it's really funny to be, to be interviewed by you now. Yeah, I've I've come a long way from being a a student radio DJ, and and here we are both teaching anthropology now. Yeah, which uh, always wanted to feel great about. So um, yeah, happy to be talking. (laughs) It's a very weird coincidence and unexpected. So your research has had a lot to do with another aspect that I know from you back in the day, um, which is Mm -hmm. being on food, right? So your your research explores issues of nourishment and you've published a book called Yamo. How do you yeah. how do you put these aspects of your life when you were a young student writing a, a student cookbook to then later on being interested in questions of nourishment in your research? Tell me how you bring those two aspects together if you do. Yeah, I do. And it's so funny because I never saw them as like explicitly linked at the time. But I've obviously always cared about food. And it took a lot of sort of reflective and thinking after my masters even but the reason why I care so much about how people eat, the sociality around food, what nourishment means for different people, you know, began with that journey. So, I mean, I went to cooking school, I used to, I was like a professional chef, like before I became an academic. And then at some point during my undergrad, I realized that, you know, 
a lot of students who don't know much about cooking. So we pulled together that project, which was really fun in Grahamstown. I sort of don't hardly ever think about it now. It only comes up every now and again when a student decides to Google me. And they're like, <laughs> what? You're a chef. And I was like, oh, it doesn't clean the place. It doesn't work. Um, but, of course, sort of the, the links are, are maybe hidden from others, but they're sort of increasingly coming out in terms of, of developing like a specific concerns that I have, I guess, around the ways in which we know food. And, and I mean, if I were to do that recipe book again, I, I would do it very differently, I think, um, than what I did then in those sort of strange and wonderful, but wonderfully strange currently currently known as Rhodes. You and I both were at the same institution and we were kind of trained in a particular tradition of very critical cultural and social anthropology. And now you are in this position of designing your own anthropology courses. What were your starting points given the experiences that you've had might not necessarily have been what you want to do at a brand new university? How, how do you draw from what you've learned from Rhodes, UCT into shaping a brand new anthropology curriculum? I mean, that's a really big question, but I think it's funny because I'm, I'm putting in my office now and I'm still, I still have my files from Rhodes. I have my files from Rhodes and my, um, and my readers from UCT. And of course I draw on them all the time and I think about them, but that's not enough and we can't keep, keep doing those, those things the same way we can't keep calling Rhodes Rhodes. But we can't keep perpetuating the same ideas, you have to change and reinvigorate and you have to ask where that comes from. So it's a really talented question. And I think the first thing that I did actually when I when I found out I got this job, I just phoned a lot of people. I phoned all the college students, I met them to copy it. I need to continue in a week. Um, it's not this thing. Um, how do you feel about your undergrad? What did you have done differently? Like, what do you think anthropology is? Like what do you know about anthropology? And it was so fascinating. So people were just saying, I don't really know what anthropology is. It's very hard to explain, which I know professors can still say the same thing. But I don't really know what I can do. And that was a sort of a starting point for me to think about, you know, how do I deal with this? So I let students write about what they think anthropology is in the first lecture. They write themselves a letter. Like, what do you think anthropology is? Why are you here? What are you doing? And then we sort of do all the research and thinking, and I have to like, explain anthropology, you know, to your sort of a granny or a friend or someone. So I... Just do a lot of research, I think. Uh, mm, I mean, and and one, what were some of those responses when you asked people what, what are their perceptions? Because when I first entered uh, the university lecture hall, I had absolutely no clue that I would end up making this, you know, my, my area of, of research. Um, what are students' perceptions about this discipline? I mean, similarly, people are kind of curious. They don't know what it is. And of course, I'm sure you're familiar with the same, you know, the assumptions that either it's only forensic, so you're going to deal with bones, or it's archaeology. And some people are, are quite disappointed, especially when they find out that it's sort of very social. I mean, I don't really, I mean, I, the distinctions between social and cultural anthropology in Africa are confusing but important. But I, I sort of think of it as a social anthropology course. But then people might expect sort of, you know, the classical definition of culture being taught and maybe a dance that uh, they could pin as being the dance of this or this culture means like this. So that's, I think, something to deal with, which we can, you know, like have all sorts of discussions about everyday life. But I also tell students in the same place lecture that I had no idea what anthropology was when I signed up for it. As in, I literally signed up for it by mistake. So that I arrived late at university because I'd been cooking and working. And then I sort of wanted to do environmental science, environmental science in journalism. And I asked what subjects I had to take. And they said I could choose between anthropology, geology, and botany. And I said, what's anthropology? And she said, it's 
like studies of humans. Do you have to do I have to dissect anyone? <laughs> oh God, um, I hope not. I know because you said in the same word as zoology and, and biology or zoology and botany. So I was like, oh okay, this has something to do with the structure of things. I don't know. And then she said, no, you don't have to dissect anyone. I said, okay, sign me up. And then I walked into DLT, like late, like there, there like with no seats, I found on the, the stairs, and there was like Rose Boswell talking about um, slavery and the diaspora. I was like, what? Um, so I tell students that story too, because I think that's one way of saying, like, it's okay not to know what this is. This is, you know, in many ways, like a strange kind of discipline. And then I do spend a lot of time thinking how to introduce it. So I guess I do things like, I don't know how interesting it is to do a readership if they're not in anthropology, but rather than start with Malinowski, for example, I start with like General Kenyasa and Malinowski's introduction, and then you read Mr. Rangley's with a gaze, and then you read um, some discussions around anthropology and talk about careers in anthropology. So, and I keep asking about it sort of first and second year, like, is this, do you think this is anthropology? Why isn't it? Why could it be? How could we do it differently? So, and I think it's so important I, to to share those origin stories, um, because I think a lot of people perceive academics as people who kind of just know from day one this is my research area and I'm just going to pursue this kind of line just you know um, for the rest of my career. And especially given the times that we're in, where this discipline, along with many other disciplines in the social sciences, but I think particularly the history of anthropology needs to be politicized and contextualized, especially on the continent. Mm. And so it's so important for, I think, academics to share how they came to have this particular mm. knowledge and also to be quite explicit about this is how I was taught this thing. And I'm mm. interested in kind of shaking things up and, and trying it slightly different. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know how you deal with this, but I find it quite hard sometimes to draw the line between telling students about the process of learning and teaching and then making space for learning and teaching in the classroom. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Could you elaborate a bit more? So, so, for example, in the course that I just taught, there's a lot of focus on process. So I'm saying, rather than doing the theory in North, this is the theory, or studying in these new ways, it's a way that I've taught, like, this is urban anthropology, or this is whatever theory, we're doing it like this, and this is why we're doing it. And then sometimes I worry that students are saying, like, okay, we keep talking about how we're going to do things, why we're doing things, can okay, we just do the thing, can we just do it differently from the start, without having the genealogy, like, the history of why we're doing the thing this way. And I guess in some senses it can, you know, A, be boring, B, be burdensome, C, you know, I don't know. I, I guess it's something that you kind of have to trial by error, you know. In some instances, I think it's important for students to learn as they go along. But also mm-hmm. in other instances, as I mentioned, that the discipline is so politicized right now. And it's so important mm-hmm. to make evident why it is. You know, a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, I, I had a very contentious conversation in the classroom about ethnicity and tribe and why Mm. these concepts need to be deconstructed and not just kind of taken Mm -hmm. at face value and so I think it's something that you 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 kind of negotiate and Mm -hmm. I was really interested when I was reading your paper that you you were discussing kind of the the relationship between do you choose flesh first or do you choose bone first when you are mm-hmm. exploring putting together, you know, a, a new curriculum, can you just tell me a bit more? Wh- what is flesh? What is bone? And and how do you how do you think about the relationship between these two things? Yeah, I mean, I got that from Gloria and Goldie with um, La Frontera, um, which is a fascinating. It's between borderlands, which I think is a really fascinating piece to think with in terms of coloniality. 
But the flesh was about it's the opening paragraph of the very beautiful chapter. It was his writing, he's talking about the writing process. And I guess this is what I, I was reflecting on in this paper. I'm trying to think about the process of designing a course sort of from scratch in inverted commas, which is obviously the challenge that I had, which is one that I think we should all present ourselves with. So then to think about sort of the bones, the bones might be sort of the canon, like what is the, what, you know, what, do you, what are we supposed to have in an anthropology degree? You know, what do students need to know when they get out? And that might be foundational text, it might be skills, it might be a set of outcomes, it might be that you have to be able to read this thing, read that thing. And then maybe the flesh is like the, the material that fills it up or the way in which you get the sense of understanding. And, and it, this is another thing that comes up. I mean, last year, um, students are really struggling. The first year students are really struggling with anthropology, and they said to me, I don't get it. So I just made a Facebook post and asked my like, friends and colleagues to respond, like, how can you help these students? Like, they're getting it. They don't realize that they're getting it, but they're getting it. And so many of them wrote back to say, like, you think you're not getting it? And then one day when you're in Turkey, you just open your eyes, and you're like, wow, I get this thing. And maybe this place, this is not a very uh, academic-sounding way of describing it, and obviously in, in the paper, it's exactly like this. But we can think about sort of that, that sense that we have or that creative space. Um, and in many ways, it's the material, right? So it's like, these are the foundational things, but then how do I fill the core space? So like, what are we talking about? What, is, what are the topics? How are we dealing with, dealing with this? So, so basically, what she says about writing is that, you know, you think that you would do the scaffolding first, the bones, but then sometimes the bones can't work without the, the conversation or the, or the flesh in between. So mm. part of what I'm arguing is that we have to think them together and we have to let them arise together and we have to let them inform each other, which is really hard to do in institutional spaces, right? Because institutions and universities and particularly have conventions around um, what anthropology is or, or what university is or what teaching is or what good pedagogy is. So at the new institution, you have the opportunity to really redefine what is uh, taken as the canon. How are you approaching that question about who is regarded as a founding father or founding mother or central to knowledge production, not only of the continent, but doing anthropology in the continent? How do you negotiate this tension? So what we do with the canon is I introduce students to it, sort of I would show them an image that I sort of found online of like a timeline that ostensibly has the canon or contains the canon. And then we intervene and we intervene by reading Philip Lakey's Native Life as a political tract based on ethnography. I mean, he cycles around South Africa on his bicycle, um, collecting data and, and stories. Or we'll read Gloria Neil Hurston, um, thinking about religion, uh, which we do next. And we will consider, so we'll think about Malafki. I mean, we'll, we'll have some time for this discussion around how the discipline um, was put on the books. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Mr. Malinovsky um, wrote all the notes of the specific, whatever specific, and he could be the founding father because there were always subjects involved, and those subjects were very often black Africans or seemed to be sort of in inverted commas exotic others on an island or some other space. And um, and one way of of bringing those voices and those people into this sort of weird sense of the canon is by really emphasizing everyday stories. So we walk the city, we listen to the city, we're thinking about space and place and materials. I think the, the idea of the canon is something that um, is static, something that we can take hold of and something that we can teach and then have a tick box, like congratulations, you, you sort of you know this history, is a fallacy. And also one that I'm not well informed enough to teach. I haven't, I don't know if you've read all of Malinowski and the entire Capital and 
you know, all the tracts that we've read. I mean, um, and sometimes I think I should. I don't know how you deal with this question. Sometimes I feel just really awfully guilty for not having sort of read every single anthropological text. And other times I think that's okay. Like, I don't, I don't need them to know anything about them. I don't have to have read every word or detail in order to be here and doing this, doing this thing. No, I, I certainly haven't read all of Malinowski's writing, certainly. Um, <laughs> what? But, just missing out. Ah, oh, just missing out. Um, <laughs> but I do, I'm kidding, I, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah. I do think you raise such an important uh, question about these ideological biases, right, that come that come through the back door, that come through the, the kind of hidden curriculum. It's not overtly said that we will only focus on these dead often white men, but mm. if that is constantly what is taught as the canon, we do then mm. kind of slip in these ideological biases into the intellectual mm. training. That that does mm. provoke these important intellectual questions that you're talking about, that what of the participants, what of the students' own experiences and how they mm. then take this knowledge in. I think it's a really important thing to raise. And you mentioned that you, you've done walkabouts in the city. Can you tell me more mm-hmm. about the projects that you, you've done with your students to not only teach them about anthropology, but work with them as co-producers of knowledge? Yeah, with them and, and the city. So last year, I sort of a funding call came up, a project with Kutcher Project Space, um, you know, they do arts funding. And I applied with Fonta Kutcher and Kulili Madija and Terajemi and Shuti. So Fonta Kutcher is an artist, and he was from those um, Eastern Cape days. And Kulili Madija is an incredible librettist who lives in Kimberley. Terajemi and Shuti as a PhD candidate actually in anthropology at UFS and he sort of lives close by and he's an artist and performer and very many things. And um, I wanted to find a way to think about the big hole in the classroom without sort of re-imbibing the narrative of the big hole. So basically, Kuwait, let's start again with the big hole. So, I mean, the city of Kimberley is just known as the big hole city, right? So this is known as the place of diamonds, the diamond city, the city that sparkles and... I, I think it's, represent- it's a really interesting point, right, to talk about representation, to think about what it means to have sort of this emblematic colonial wound um, right here in the city. So we basically designed a project in which we were all collaborating and working together, which is also part of trying to move away from from disciplinary boundaries or, or the, you know, the conventional formats of, of having an essay or having a sort of, you know, published journal articles. And students walked around. We did many things. So, so we first did with Toto Terrigen. We did sort of classes and dancing and told stories with our bodies in the art gallery. And we, I let students, I said, take you to the highest place. And we went to the highest places on campus and around and looked down at the city and read this and thought about the view from the top. And then we walked in the city, um, sort of making notes. We wrote a poem all together about our experience in the city. And part of what, we, then students were, were sort of able to go out and collect their own stories on a topic that they chose. So the, the context is that the course is a research methods course or sort of a research course. And they did the most incredible stories. So they collected, you know, they went to the municipality, they asked questions about the water quality, they asked questions about the mall as a space of consumption and conditioning. They asked questions about the mining compounds and the ways in which sort of that history or the history of the big hole, this glamorous diamond industry has completely obscured um, the terrible oppression that happened in the mines and the ways in which sort of the modern compounds um, that 
sort of private capitalists perpetuating and building. So students had the opportunity to work with Francois, um, and then we worked with this incredible dance group, Amanda Dante Teatro, and Amanda and Katie McGee and other collaborators. So we ended up having this sort of, I think, really incredible intervention, which was also really tough. It was a really tough semester in terms of, of sort of teaching and walking this path and doing this experiment. But we had a, and I don't know if you saw any of the videos or sort of media on, online or on Facebook, but we had an exhibition on campus. So the, the sort of the output that students had to do for this project was a visual um, or some kind of engagement, you know, that they could have the, with the public. And, you know, one, one pair of students did research on gambling and the, the concept of luck, right, in the city uh, in which it was apparently very lucky to get a stake, never mind the political economy at the time, to get a, you know, a stake at a claim. And they sort of designed these beautiful games and, you know, people who came to the exhibition were invited to play, but the odds were stacked against them. And uh, students made films. They, learned, they just taught, they made films overnight and other students rode around on their bicycles and interviewed people around town and visited this place called White Man's Park, which is Royal Bean Park, but everyone knows it's White Man's Park. And so we had their exhibition and then we had Amanda Dante Teatro performing at the university. It was the most incredible musical performance and Francois made a film which will be available online soon and which has snippets of students' research um, seen from the city and part of what we're trying to do is really think about the big whole narrative and and how we can counter that narrative by telling ordinary stories of an ordinary city people's stories. So yeah, that's that project. I don't know if you have any more questions about it. I get so excited when I talk about it. It was just like it was no, very, really, it sounds, really it sounds absolutely amazing. And I, I and, yeah. and I love the fact that in pushing the boundaries not only for, you know, a creative outlet as a sidebar, but as a really core part of exploring research methodologies and even yeah. pedagogies that one can collaborate with artists, one can collaborate yeah. with dancers, and not in the sense that we no longer require disciplines, but recognizing how much we can benefit and learn from through these practices. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. that's really important. And it speaks to the, the, the question of institutional culture that I mentioned earlier that I'd like to return mm -hmm. to, that you, mm -hmm. you're sitting firstly in a context where I, I've mentioned this to you before, where I've said, you're so lucky you have a blank slate. You can just <laughs> kind of start from scratch. Uh, you, you have everyone's dream of kind of, this is a brand new university. You get to create the curriculum from scratch. And mm -hmm. and you you disagreed with me many a time about my blank slate fantasies. So tell me, mm. wh why do you disagree with me about this blank slate idea about a new university? I mean, look, I think in many senses it's blank in the sense that there's no course been written for me, and I'm the one writing the course. But to think that it was a blank slate is to suggest that I don't impossibly say wrote instead of the university currently known as wrote or that I'm looking at my bookshelf and there are files from different universities and readers from different universities and that I arrived here with an idea of the university and that the university itself has, a, has an idea. It's informing an idea about itself, right? So there's an institutional culture that is embedded in the architecture, which, by the way, is beautiful, incredible, and, and really hopeful, and I think doing its best to, to get away from conventional normative ideas of what a university might be and the ways in which our administration operates, the ways in which we designate faculties, the ways in which we run meetings, the ways in which we talk and have deadlines and um, and think and design, you know, classroom practices and think about pedagogy. So we all arrive with 
serious, such serious baggage, like such serious, um, I don't know, you could call it like an intellectual habitus, but it's also just conventions around what a university is and could be. And, um, and in spaces like this, I think it's really important to hold on to the beauty and the potential of having this clean slate. So this is a creative space, right? If you think about a clean slate, slate it should be a creative space. It should be, it should have so many dimensions. And it's so exciting because of that. It's, because, it's so exciting because I could do this thing. Like I could get away with taking my class walking and doing this big collaborative project that inviting children and dancers to the campus and um, you know, doing quite a few crazy things. That I've done. I can get away with it because it's new. And maybe the university hasn't noticed yet. Maybe they will. I don't know. <laughs> um, but we can get away with these things because it's so exciting. There's so much potential. But I think we have to be so careful and so critical um, which I know it can be exhausting, just not to get stuck in that fantasy because there's a lot at stake in, thinking, in thinking that something is a clean slate when, in fact, it's being so much informed by our ideas, our pasts, our own teachers, our own experiences, and sort of ideas about what the university is. What would you do if you had a clean slate? Like Oh, the things like, I would do. What do you think a clean slate, <laughs> what does a clean slate look like? I, I think for me, it, it's a lot about part of the, the moment where we still in I was going to say come from but the moment that we're still in with questions of decolonizing our institutions Africanizing our institutions at the forefront of our minds right and Mm -hmm. in that we we're constantly coming against bureaucracies managerial Mm -hmm. styles and you know what what is it performance management all these kinds of things Mm -hmm. that when when you are a young academic and you see all these things you're just like oh if only I just had a brand new university where we, mm. you know, designed the classrooms the way we wanted. We designed the the, the lecture timetables the way we wanted. Uh, mm. But and and you're completely correct that it, the fantasy falls short in in the face of realizing that we ourselves have been institutionalized by mm. these older universities. We come with our baggage, let alone mm. the students who have a particular understanding of what a university education mm. ought to look like. Mm. And yeah, so exactly. I, I'd, I'd love to fantasize about, you know, kind of involving more creative work, uh, students kind of thinking of their learning not only confined to the 45-minute lecture, but how mm. their lived experience informs what happens in those 45 minutes that I see them, you know, on a Monday or a Wednesday. Um, mm. And it, 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 it's, I think, sobering to hear that we are never going to get that romantic notion. We're never going to get a situation mm. where it is just completely, you know, and it's a completely colonial fantasy, well, to be honest. It's like I terra mean, nullis, right? That, oh, I'm just going to arrive and just start from scratch. But there is never a start from scratch. Yeah. We all come yeah, with... But I think the question itself is, is nice to think about, right? Because it forces us to recognize what prevents, what prevents that, and that's the burden of history. But in this case, maybe I should just tell you a little bit about the things that are, like, so helpful in terms of this clean slate. The fact mm. that we have such small classes, I have 14 second years, and Nukabongo is currently teaching six first years, which is incredible because with 14 students, you can really do so much. So mm. the challenge will be later in scaling that up if we have when we have more students. Um, but it's a beautiful space in which to think, and I hope that later we won't just give in to sort of the pressures of not getting creative assignments, not doing things because they're hard to assess, right? That's the other thing that happens. So mm. assessment, you'll get in big trouble if you don't have sort of, you know, you have to go to assess, you have to give marks. Um, so that's one way in which I think, though, that it is really 
really beautiful to be able to experiment. And also because um, I have such incredible resources. So part of what I do is I just pick up the phone and phone people. When I'm confused, I don't know. I just say, well, we're doing this thing. Please help. How do I teach this? How do I deal with this situation? How do I do this? How do I do this? And people are really willing to help. Um, students are really excited to be here. Our students are so incredible. Um, and you say way that I'm sure everyone thinks so, but you know what I mean? Like, they are just so excited to be here most of the time. Obviously, not always. But those things really help. But in terms of thinking like we're young academics, we're thinking about decolonizing, we're thinking about politics. Um, and then obviously, I'm, I'm a white woman that comes into the space thinking about decolonizing, thinking about politics. And that is a surprise to some people that I would be vocal about these things, asking questions about these things, or promoting them, which in itself is an indication that in order to have the, our fantasy of a clean slate, we all need to be on the same page with, with decolonizing as, a, sort of a, as an effort or something we care about, um, which is not the case. It's not the case at any university, and, and of course it's not the case here, that, that everyone cares about this, this deeply. Um, then it makes us ask, how do we change that, or, or what does it mean? Yeah, that doesn't help. But I also do, I, I did get to change the timetable, but it meant I had to be on the timetable committee, which was a nightmare, which is part <laughs> of the other thing is that we're building this ship while we're in it, so we won't have to be on like a million committees. It's better now, but last year I was on the orientation committee, and the timetable committee, and the institutional forum, and then I'm teaching. So it's a lot of people playing a lot of roles, which also means that the same ideas and the same things sort of you know, rotate around, but I did get double lectures for anthropology, so I have an hour and a half in which to explore <laughs> these questions, so that's nice, yeah. Sure, and uh, you, you raised the, the the issue of care, or the topic of care, mm-hmm. and also thinking mm-hmm. about community quite a few times, and I think it's central in a, in a town such as Kimberley, which is, this is the first university, if I am correct, Mm-hmm. in Kimberley and so you're yeah. not just only thinking about making the interventions in the classroom but where you are located you yeah. would like to not reproduce the ivory tower in many ways yeah. and yeah. I, I wanted to find out how can how do you rather explore you know building new knowledges also thinking around questions of care and the relevance yeah. of decolonizing uh, anthropology without then doing the thing that I see so often with young female academics is that the care for the three-dimensional student, the contextual awareness of this is where we are located, we are on the African continent, we are trying to produce knowledge and encourage knowledge producers in the 21st century. And then you're doing the most, right? You're doing the most because you want to care, you want to create new knowledge, you want to make sure that the students are okay and well-rounded, you know, mm. participants of the continent and then shaping and then being part of these uh, vigorous conversations. How do you do all of that? Is, is, yeah, is, it, is it even humanly possible to do all of those things? And we were having this discussion, actually in, in, this, in the seminar, I gave a seminar with her, we gave a seminar together on nourishment in the first thousand days, sort of my thesis on her bigger project. And students asked the question. Um, we ended up having a, a discussion around care, and she, she reminded us that, um, that self-care is the basis of feminist practice. And it's something that we really have to, have to do and have to take very seriously as a means for caring for others. So that's something that I have, I have learned or I am learning in the very, very hard way of taking a weekend, you know, or, um, or recognizing that, um, by overworking myself, I become less available or less possible to do to assist 
or to help with the care students, I think we have to be very conscious of the gender dynamics of care, so the way in which mm-hmm. women lecturers are very are much more often tasked with caring for students, particularly in terms of of emotional um, and other sort of situations. I think women lecturers are much more often tasked with that kind of, of care burden, so we have to think about the ways in which institutions perpetuate sort of that kind of skewed dynamic. But then in terms of the bigger, I mean, we've been having this wonderful discussion on care based on Tom Van Duren's paper on care, um, which we started off the semester with, which was a tip I got from Andre and Pia at Northwest University. And they said, this is how we start the semester, thinking about care, care in the classroom, care, whatever. And what Tom Van Duren asks is, well, it's sort of a sort of very short but very snappy paper. And, and what about we take away from it is, is how, can, how can care be violent? So... How can we care if we understand care as an emotional labor, as an ethical obligation, as something that has to have a practical um, sort of application, I guess, is an ugly or sort of boring way to say it. Um, and then once we consider, if we consider care in those terms, um, then we need to also sort of move forward and ask about how care can be violent. So in the context of, of sort of the city and the university, I think the university is being very conscious about situating itself um, as an institution that cares about and wants to respond to local issues. And, of course, I think there's a risk of parochialism in that uh, we can possibly have a situation in which, for example, students who are from Kimberley would be insisting on having raids because they're from Kimberley and the university is for the Northern Cape. There's even a university here in the Northern Cape, um, a formal university such as this, so then maybe we'll have people saying, well, this is our university. It's the University of the Northern Cape. So students from the Eastern Cape and KZN must stay in in, um, in their own rooms and we can have a room in raid. So I think that's maybe one risk. But in terms of responding to, to local questions, I think the big whole counter-narrative was part of that question. And, and having a discussion around the ethics of research and the ethics of, of this like, entangled space that we found ourselves in as a university within a city, within a province, within a country, within a within a time, um, within a moment, I guess, we, I think, are obliged to consider that. So for students, that meant, you know, inviting, we all had to invite our participants to come along to the exhibition. And we have to, you know, think about ways of having a continuous engagement. And the response that students had when we, we spoke about care, so we ended off last week, we took out the same paper and said, how have we cared for ourselves in the class? How did we care for our research participants, our interlocutors? How did we care for Kimberly and the story and, and how can we do more, how can we care better and, and students said well we need to do it again we need to do this every year, Like we need to keep asking these questions, we need to keep exploring stories we need to keep listening to people and I thought that was really um, quite profound and beautiful so so now I have to, to make sure we do it again every year <laughs> and that's my job <laughs> that's how I, I can help care in this case I think mm. um, yeah I don't know how, how do you formulate care in relation to your work that's a very difficult question for me to answer. And and I think the journey that you and your students and the new institution that Salt Lake University are presented with a very unique opportunity to start asking this question um, about care, you know, because you can start from the place of how do we, not how do we care more? Because I also don't want to, mm. you know, present this mm. as some kind of virtuous crusade with, mm, with a, exactly. a blanket answer for how, how caring occurs. But I'm I'm certainly sensitive and it's it's particularly um, been, been highlighted for me as one of our students lost her life this last weekend. 
Um, mm. And it, it's one of those kind of issues where you, you sit back and you're not only wondering about how do I care more as an academic, how do I care more as a teacher, how do I care for myself, but it's also going back to this question, I think we've been thinking a lot about this season on the academic citizen, is what are universities for? And mm. do we do this thing that we claim that we are for? Um, and this, the, the, the passing of the student has been particularly difficult to think about, you know, marks, stress, personal life, a lot of things go into young people feeling isolated, um, within mm. these institutions. And mm. it's so important for me to remind my students as much as I want them to strive and work hard is mm. that this is not your life, right? The, this grade mm. is not your life. This is not who you are. And it's really mm. something that we don't take enough efforts to emphasize that mm. your marks are not an indication of your value. Um, mm. Graduating with a particular degree and not being able to get, you know, the high flying job is not who you are. And mm. that is something that I think is still very difficult for me to negotiate in my own practice. Mm. But I also think we need to grapple with in ensuring that our students don't feel that they are not enough. They are not adequate. And it's and maybe it's not necessarily a question of care, but it's certainly something that's been on my mind in the last couple of days. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful question. And so part of what we, and I'm I'm very sorry about the loss of your student's life. I think that's devastating and it's always hard to deal with in these, in these moments. It's always raising these fragile questions. But part of the sort of the discussion that we had last week around care, so basically during the exhibition, there were some differences in the class. Um, I had miscommunicated about how funding would be used. So I said, we've got this money, and students thought that the funding, that they would have money, well, I don't know, if they did, they thought they did. it was a complicated story. They thought that they'd have money to buy things for their research projects, um, where the idea was, in fact, to, to, to sort of spiral fonts of his work and, and use trash and use things that they can pick up, ordinary things to do these projects. So so there was basically some, some trouble in the class later, and... Uh, sort of the day before the exhibition and I was so nervous and I was so upset by it and I was, and you know, sort of, I think a few collaborators were saying these students don't care, they don't care about this project and mm. they don't care about these people and they don't care about the city or, you know, they don't care about about these concerns that we have and I think it's really important, so part of my reflection as a class was, was thinking about how when we um, ask people to care, uh, what it is that we're asking, whether or not it's fair to do that in academic spaces. And I think it is really, really hard to do, especially when when we had to care a lot in order to get to where we are. For me, anyway, I guess maybe that's part of how I feel about this. I feel like I've got here, here mostly because I really care about something very deeply. And um, and then we have to remember that students you know, don't need to mirror us and, and they need to feel okay about not mirroring us, which is... I think even more complicated in, in a situation in which a white woman is teaching a class in which there's not one white student. Mm. Sure. Mm. I think you have an amazing opportunity at Solplike University, and I'll certainly be watching very closely the ways in which you and also your colleagues are navigating this amazing opportunity to attempt to reformulate and decolonize a very vexed discipline, but hopefully with some potential for doing something different and something new. And I really appreciate you spending time and talking to us, especially the way in which you, you've given so much of your, your thought and your feelings and, you know, blood, sweat and toil 
into producing a different kind of project and I wish you guys all the best in this journey. Thank you. Thank you and I hope you'll come in and visit us maybe with some of your amazing sort of ideas and thoughts and vibes. So thank you for the invitation. Um, and yeah, I really believe in this project that you have running on. It's, it's something that's instrumental in what, what I think we're trying to do here. <laughs> so thank, thank you. Thank yeah, you so much, privilege. Hi, I'm Tato Mukwena from Tswani University of Technology. And I think uh, the challenges uh, facing uh, the new universities uh, are issues of uh, credibility and the lack of uh, resources. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. 